Well, I'm so glad to be with you all. This is, this is great for sure. I realize I'm in the treacherous position of being between you and dinner. So I'll try to be a little bit more brief tonight than I was this morning. Uh, anyway, so that's, that's where we stand. But earlier this morning we looked at 2 Samuel 9 and we celebrated the beautiful realities of God's adoptive love through the Davidic dynasty, preeminently through King David's greater son, Jesus Christ. And we saw the collision of fatherhood and kingship in the Old Testament. And perhaps it surprised some of us to see that graphic display of the gospel even embedded in the Old Testament. Tonight we want to move beyond the glorious realities that Christ has achieved for us in sonship and actually to look at how our sonship plays out in this world. We want to realize how can we live out our position in Christ as God's adopted son and daughter, particularly in a world which is full of dangers, toils, And snares. And we realize, of course, that we have an enemy, Satan, who wants to rob us of the joys of sonship. If it is true that our sonship in Christ is the highest blessing of the gospel, to know God as Father and to trust Him as Father, it only makes sense that this would be the very area where our enemy would seek to rob us of the joy of experiencing this relationship with God. And we know, of course, this happens among our teenagers, particularly when they've freshly gripped the gospel for the first time. The enemy seeks to come in and snatch their joy, not just to destroy us, but also to rob our Father of the glory that our love and trust brings him. So tonight, very simply, we want to look at how we live out our sonship in this world. To that end, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask that he would supply us with wisdom. Father, we thank you that you equip us when we open your word, which is living and active. We thank you for the joy of singing the praises together as your people, that it is well with our souls. Whether it is we're surrounded by peace like a river or, or whether sorrows are billowing over us. We pray that tonight as we dig into how to live out our sonship in this world, and how to trust you, our Father, and trust your grace, would you equip us with the gospel? Would you pour your spirit upon us and help us to more meaningfully rely upon your word, seeing its power, and trusting you above all else? It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. If you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. This is where we will be parking this evening, even though we're not driving, so that did not work, that analogy. But turn to Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. And we're going to be reading Matthew 3, verses 13, all the way through chapter 4, verse 11. Matthew 3:13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan... To John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, 
the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That's one of the great understatements of the Bible. Just want you to know that, in case that's a trivia question for some night. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord for us tonight. During our time together, we will very simply reflect upon this text in four key areas. We're going to ask four questions What is the foundation of our sonship? What is the enemy of our sonship? What is the expression of our sonship? And lastly, what is the effect of our sonship? Foundation, enemy, expression, effect. First of all, our sonship is founded upon the unique sonship of Jesus Christ. Our sonship is founded upon the unique sonship of Jesus Christ. Well, what is the essence of Jesus' sonship? In what sense is Jesus the unique Son of God? We receive several key insights in Matthew 3, verses 13 to 17, when Jesus willingly undergoes a sinner's baptism, though he had no sin, and demonstrates solidarity with sinners by undergoing this baptism in the hands of John the Baptist. Though John the Baptist is shocked by Jesus' desire to submit to baptism, Jesus states that by his baptism at the hands of John, he will be fulfilling... Oh, wait. He will be fulfilling all righteousness. There's little things in life, you know, distractions. You just got to roll with them. Yeah, when, you're, when your microphone drops, it's all okay. In this way, Jesus strengthens his qualification to be our representative and our mediator. 
by undergoing a sinner's baptism and by demonstrating his solidarity with mankind in their weakness, he strengthens his qualification to be our mediator and our representative. He demonstrates his humility. And upon his humble submission to water baptism, we see an unparalleled revelation showcasing the Father's pleasure in him. Do you see this in verses 16 and 17? And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The language of the heavens opening recalls Old Testament passages when God would particularly anoint and equip his servants for ministry. And we see in this dramatic scene the Trinity. Here is Jesus the Son, the Spirit descending like a dove, the Father's voice proclaiming his pleasure in the Son from heaven. And in this triune solidarity, we see that Jesus is set apart as the Messianic Son In that sense, he is unique. He is God's Messiah. He is the servant son. He is the unique son of God. But we do see that the essence of sonship here is to receive the Father's pleasure. The essence of sonship is to receive the Father's pleasure. Well, why does a father's pleasure or a mother's pleasure really matter? I mean, how much does it matter? In a recent article about Howard Stern, I know you did not expect to hear about Howard Stern tonight, but welcome. You're welcome. So in a recent article about Howard Stern, the the interviewer was asking him about his decision to join America's Got Talent. And interestingly, this is what he says about the role of Howard Stern's own father in shaping his personality. Howard said, My father was very tough on me. He would call me a moron. Don't be stupid, you moron. That's my father's line, Stern then admitted. I'm still that little kid who needs that approval. It's awful. We seek our father, our mother's approval. And some of us here tonight know the pain of not ever receiving that. We feel a void in our lives because we have not received that level of our parents' approval. Some of us have massive insecurities on account of that, or we've just given up entirely and we've resigned ourselves with hard-heartedness, right? We close ourselves off from intimacy. Well, if we know these realities, surely our youth are dealing with the same thing. And I find our, uh, our parents influenced, or the parents of our youth influenced by the American dream are obsessed with performance. They're obsessed with achievement. And so they're very hard to please. I mean, how many of the youth in your youth group have parents that are hard to please? You know what I'm talking about? The parents are hard to please. And so they demand excellence in athletics and the the social world. They demand excellence in academics. And actually, they often inordinately outsource their God-given responsibilities to coaches, tutors, and sometimes even to us. They're outsourcing They want to produce something with their kids. And so some of our youth and our youth ministries are left always guessing about whether or not they 
have secured their parents' approval apart from their performance. Think about how devastating that is. Now, some of us know that devastation by experience, but if we don't imagine how devastating that would be to always be wondering if you have your parents' approval, how does the gospel of grace affect this? Well, our Heavenly Father freely grants His acceptance of all of His children. He grants His approval to all of His children. And as we receive His blessing and His approval, our hearts of stone melt and our insecurities fade. Now this is, of course, a process. But as we open our hearts to receive this declarative approval of God our Father, we are changed. Well, why does the Father choose to make known His pleasure in the Son in this moment? In this moment when the Son willingly, in humility, undergoes a sinner's baptism. Baptism. The Father's special commissioning of Jesus highlights Jesus' unique relationship with God. And this is why the Father shows his pleasure, because Jesus is fulfilling righteousness by, under, by, by showing his solidarity with sinners and undergoing a sinner's baptism in humility. And the Father is pleased by this. Jesus brings glory to the Father. Matthew has already identified Jesus as the unique Son of God in his office as Messiah. We see in chapter 1 that Jesus is named Emmanuel, the one by whom the sins of God's people will be forgiven. In Matthew's opening genealogy, Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham in the unique sense, in his office as Messiah. So Jesus, the unique son of God, is the servant son. He has the vocation vocation of being Messiah. And yet, when we speak of Jesus being the unique son, We don't, in some sense, mean that we, the adopted children of God, are second-class citizens. But we mean it along the lines of where Dr. Ray, sorry, Ray preached this morning. He told me earlier I had to call him Ray, and I'm I'm laboring. I'm sorry. I'm trying. In the sense that Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers. He is unique, but he's our elder brother. And what does Jesus do with his firstborn privileges? He lays them aside in order to adopt, in order that his father might adopt us through him. But our sonship is founded upon Jesus' unique sonship. Secondly, in this passage, we see that our sonship comes under constant and severe attack. Our sonship comes under constant and severe attack. Where does the anointing spirit lead Jesus right after the father's declaration of pleasure? The wilderness. Are you kidding me? The Spirit anoints Jesus in a special sense. Not that the Spirit had not been with Jesus to that point, but it was a special messianic anointing. And he takes Jesus to the wilderness to be tempted. Though we would expect anything but fierce temptation on the heels of such uh, divine declaration of approval, this is where the Spirit takes the Son. And this series of events, the Father declaring his pleasure, the Son anointing the Spirit, anointing Jesus, then taking him into the wilderness, the series of events talks to us, tells us about our own sonship. Because, specifically, you may be a child of God with whom your Father is well pleased, but in the wilderness. You may be a child of God with whom your Father is well pleased, but in the wilderness undergoing fierce temptation. 
Sometimes when we're in the wilderness and we're facing battles and enemies, we are tempted to look at our circumstances and work backwards and assume that we do not have the approval or the pleasure of our Father on account of our circumstances. But when we hold together Matthew 3.17 and Matthew 4.1 and we keep them in tandem, we see that God's pleasure is not revoked by wilderness circumstances. In fact, it is God's very leading to take the Son into the wilderness. So we can no longer speculate, how can a loving father treat his son this way when we're in our wilderness? Because we see this with Jesus. Now some gospel teaching, namely prosperity gospel, spreads the lie that to be a true child of God, we would experience health, wealth, happiness, right? God is our credit card or our therapist. I need one, you know. Why not? But God is our credit card or our therapist. He exists to meet our needs. He gives us self-esteem, self-fulfillment, or any other form of self-actualization, right? We buy into this fable influenced by the the me-centered American meta-narrative, right? When we buy into this fable, we are ill-equipped to deal with life in the wilderness. Because once we're in the wilderness, if we bought into that lie then somehow we will doubt God's love for us on account of the deficit of provision that we see with our eyes. Some of us are presently in the wilderness and we may feel as if we are to the point of starvation due to lack of encouragement in our jobs, lack of meaningful ministry from the pulpit that preaches to our hearts week after week, lack of receiving kindness and affirmation from the parents of our youth, We feel dry. Some of us in this room tonight are in the wilderness. And we would do well to remember that the Father is pleased with us and actually intends to form us more like Christ in the wilderness. Oftentimes the temptations that Satan uh, throws our way come in the form of subtle questions that are meant to create an atmosphere of skepticism whereby we, we doubt our Father's love. So in the wilderness, we may have questions like this that are aimed to subvert our faith. If you are the child of God, why are you so lonely? If you are the child of God, why is your faith so unimpressive? If you are the child of God, Why is your ministry unfruitful and frustrating? We hear these questions from our enemy when we're in the wilderness, and we are tempted to doubt God's provision. In fact, this goes all the way back to our original parents, Adam and Eve. What was the enemy's tactic with Eve? He asked questions that implied that the Creator is stingy, ungenerous, and seeking to withhold blessing from her. He creates an atmosphere of skepticism and casts doubt in her mind, and she bites the hook. She seeks to establish independence from God. Listen to this from C.S. Lewis in his uh, book, Screwtape Letters. And most of us are familiar with this, but just in case we're not, so that this quote isn't very confusing. The way that Screwtape Letters works is it's, a, it's an imaginary correspondence between Wormwood and a princess devil, and screw tape, you know, 
the hardcore devil, the uncle. And so when they speak of the enemy, they're actually speaking of God. But it's an, it's an insightful book about the enemy's tactics and how, what are his tactics. And this is Uncle Screwtape writing to Wormwood about his temptation of a man in sin that seems rather minor. He says, You will say that these are very small sins. And doubtless, like all young tempters, you know, you've got to have the patronizing air here. Like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Satan's goal, Satan's goal is to rob our God and Father of all glory and to rob us of the joy of trusting our Father. Jesus sees through his schemes and unlike Adam and Eve who didn't trust God in a land of plenty, Jesus trusts God in a land of want. Jesus is the new Adam. We see that our sonship comes under fierce and um, deadly attack. Thirdly, we express our our sonship when we rely upon God's word out of love for our Father. We express our sonship when we rely upon God's word out of love for our Father. Let's take a look rather simply at each of the devil's temptations to try to understand the dynamics, the the tactics that he uses, knowing that he uses similar tactics with us today and similar ammunition. The devil's first temptation of Jesus takes place in verses 2 and 4. Let's read those. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God... Command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Right away we see that the enemy, the devil, is seeking to drive a wedge between Jesus, the son's, relationship with the father. It's as if he's saying, Hey, if you're the son of God, why is it that your life sucks? Right? I mean, if you really are the Son of God and the Father is that pleased with you, why are you hungry in the wilderness? He's seeking to cast a shadow of doubt in Jesus' mind such that he would doubt God's provision for him and doubt God's care for him. He wants the Son to doubt the Father. I mean, certainly the unique Son of God ought to be better treated than this. Right? With what action does Satan tempt Jesus? Satan, this is remarkable. He simply tempts him to turn stone into bread. Now, in what sense is that sin? I mean, Jesus was the creator of the universe. 
He created everything out of nothing. So turning something into something else isn't in and of itself sin. And not only that, we see later Jesus performed a miracle where he turned water into wine. So what's going on here? What is, what is Satan trying to achieve? Ultimately, Satan is trying to tempt Jesus to express his sonship in power and self-provision. In power and self-provision. And Jesus refuses to use his privileges and his power to independently meet his own needs. He refuses to fall into this trap. Rather, he depends upon the word of God and counteracts the devil's temptation by drawing from Scripture. Now, interestingly, he cites a passage from Deuteronomy. In fact, all three passages which Jesus cites come from Deuteronomy 6 through 8, where Moses is preaching to the Israelites on the plains of Moab about total, wholehearted, loving obedience of the Father. And in this day, when Moses was preaching to the Israelites, he spoke of God's education project, where God brought his people into the wilderness in order to train them as his people before they came into the promised land. I'm going to read Deuteronomy 1 through 8, from which Jesus quotes, and as I read it, Notice the ways that Jesus, in this passage, is self-consciously fulfilling the role of Israel, such that he is now the new Israel. This is from Deuteronomy 8, verses 1 through 10. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply, and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart and whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. That's miraculous. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees with honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. In order to express his sonship through obedience, Jesus relies upon God's word. And as he does so, he's self-consciously fulfilling God's old covenant promises to Israel such that he is now the new Israel. Whereas the ethnic Israel doubted God in the wilderness, 
The true Israel, Jesus Christ, trusts him and relies upon his word so that all of God's glorious promises contained in the Old Covenant explode and burst through his fulfillment of them. This is Jesus Christ. When we are faced with the choice either to indulge our immediate desires by self-gratification or to walk in obedience, though it means denying our immediate desires, upon what or upon whom do we rely to make these decisions? If we rely upon anyone less than the Spirit of God or anything less than the Word of God, we will ultimately give in to our flesh every time. If we rely upon anyone less than the Spirit or anything less than the Word, we will give in to our flesh every time. Our enemy and our flesh are more powerful than we imagine. And massaging a naive Pollyanna approach, a way of thinking about spiritual warfare where it's not really that big of a deal, does not equip us for the wilderness and it ravages God's children. Let's take, for example, the issue of comparison and competition among our brothers and sisters in ministry. Comparison and competition. In our insecurity, we all experience the temptation to compare ourselves to one another and to wonder how we measure up. I mean, we've already done it so far at this conference, right? When we meet each other, we hear about one another's ministry successes, and if it's a place where we particularly feel failure, we're going off in our mind thinking, oh, and self-condemnation comes. Or if somebody shares a ministry failure in an area where we feel success, we're feeling really big for our britches and feel like trash talk walking. Right? We're always wanting to measure up. We're always wanting to compare ourselves. Sometimes we do this by denigrating the giftedness of others or by, and so that we can feel better about ourselves or by exalting the giftedness of others whereby we feel poorly about ourselves. When those moments come, when we are tempted either to denigrate or inappropriately exalt, how do we make a choice? How do we make a choice? Here's an example of relying upon God's word. When John the Baptist's disciples were outraged that Jesus was baptizing and so John the, John the Baptist's disciples were leaving his fold and going into Jesus' fold, what did he say? He said, I am not the Christ. He must increase. I must decrease. In those moments when each and every one of us is tempted to compete with each other, or when we have a staff member who's doing a better job in ministry and has more ostensible success and we are jealous, we're tempted to be jealous, speak those words. I am not the Christ. Christ must increase. I must decrease. Reliance upon God's words. And when we speak of this sort of dependence upon God's word and see the way that Jesus counteracted temptation, we, of course, are challenged as youth leaders with a key question. Are we teaching and training our youth in the word of God such that when they are in the wilderness, when they are faced with temptation, they have the equipment to rely upon God's word and depend upon his spirit? Are we training them in this? Are we equipping them in this? This is one of our chief objectives as youth leaders. Now, of course, there are many venues by which our kids receive the equipment, but surely in our area of influence, this ought to be an emphasis that we help our, our kids and our teenagers learn how to rely upon God's word and the spirit. And may I offer a, a quick word? And 
please give me, give me grace and that I'm not going to have time to nuance at all, but I think it's very important. And in our day, we have so many blessings with the increased media and technology, and we can listen to great sermons on any, any book of the Bible, any, any passage. We can get curricula that otherwise would have not been as easily accessed, and we have so much at our fingertips. But there is no comparison for studying God's Word on your own. And I think sometimes, especially when we're in youth ministry and we're just bogged down and weighed down with all the responsibilities and we're supposed to teach, say, on Matthew 4, it's so easy to go online and listen to somebody else's sermon and take their outline. And I'm not even talking about plagiarism. I'm just talking about cheating yourself from the joy of studying the text on your own. And to be sure, if, if we teach a lesson to, to our high school kids and we've, we've relied upon God's word rather than John Piper, right? And we relied, not saying John Piper's bad, but if we rely upon God's word and his spirit, they may receive a less polished and not as high caliber talk. But what they've seen modeled is a man or a woman who depends upon God's word, which is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. And they've seen you depend upon his spirit. Now, I don't remember that many youth talks from when I was in youth group. But I remember the way that certain people taught. And the ones who stick out the most to me are actually the weakest by way of presentation, but the strongest by way of dependence and joy. Side note, uh, I know that's not nuanced adequately, but the devil's second temptation of Jesus takes place in verses 5 and 7. Let's look at this. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan basically says, Hey, Two can play this game. You quote scripture, I quote scripture. Yay, tit for tat, right? That's basically what he's doing. He cites scripture in order to blunt the force of his temptation so that he can somehow somehow surreptitiously tempt Jesus away from allegiance to his father. And this is a good word for us. Temptation by the devil and his minions can look rather religious. Sometimes temptation even looks pious. Sometimes it even looks pious. But this is the devil taking a passage out of context and then seeking to drive a wedge between the Son and the Father such that he would lead Jesus astray. In this tactic, he's really proof texting. We see that in our own day. False gospels. Drawing from this word in in a proof texting sort of sense as if by citing scripture they're proving that they're actually communicating the gospel. Right? I mean, the, the devil can quote scripture. Right? Let's, let's just remember that. The devil can quote scripture. One example of this, for no extra charge, uh, that I see a fair amount is being a, a single person. I, I receive this, this a good bit. It's the old, God loves you so much that he gives you the desires of your heart. Now, is it true that God loves us so much that he gives us the desires of our heart? Yes. But the way that it's often said is basically this. If you desire to have a husband or to have a wife, then God will give you that. 
But if he doesn't have that for you, then he'll stop your desire. So that I've actually been told this. So that maybe by the time you're 35, you won't desire a husband anymore because God always gives his people the desires of their heart. Now, the problem with this beyond bad exegesis, right? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what else to say. But the problem with this is, again, I am the vortex. I am the center of the universe. So God is my genie in a bottle. Now, not only is that a bad view of God because it's not accurate, but how does that equip us in the wilderness? How does that equip us when our desires are not yet fulfilled? And as C.S. Lewis says, the problem is not that our desires are too strong, but it's that they're too weak. It's an example of proof texting, which actually, it looks pious and trusting, but actually it drives a wedge between us and our true father. Well, what is Satan seeking here? The language of Satan taking Jesus up to the holy place, the pinnacle of the temple, is probably visionary. It's that Satan casts a vision, but gives a real choice to Jesus. And if Jesus is on the top of the pinnacle and throws himself down and God somehow miraculously and publicly and visibly catches him up, it would lend Jesus and his messianic vocation credibility. And it would prove the Father's commitment to him. However, rather than quarrel with God and test him by doubting his provision, as the nation of Israel did in the wilderness, Jesus remained faithful to his Father in his active trust in his character and power to provide. It's as if Satan is asking, Jesus, as God's Son, you're out here in the wilderness and you've been hungry for 40 days and 40 nights and you're really proving your commitment to him and your obedience, but how can you be so sure he's as committed to you as you are to him? Again, Satan is trying to separate the son and the father. He's challenging his filial trust in God. Well, how is it that we challenge God and test God by questioning his commitment to us? Many of us got into youth ministry on account of an excitement about the gospel, an excitement about seeing the beauty of gospel community take root and form and change lives. We, we wanted to see teenagers place their faith in the sun and be radically transformed. And perhaps we believe that on account of our own earnestness or even on account of our faith, that success and fruit was guaranteed. Perhaps we thought, God, I'm so earnest, I'm so faithful in this, that success in the way I want it is guaranteed. After a few years, though, when we see slow growth and arduous labor, we wonder, is God really as committed to me as I am to him? And when that question comes, we have a choice. We can either trust our Father's grace and lean upon his word and his spirit, or we can subtly change our tactics such that over time we ease into ministry methodologies that rely more and depend more upon human strength and effort than upon the Word of God and the Spirit of God. If we choose the latter, we may begin ever so slightly to take matters into our own hands. 
We can indulge the temptation to feel that the success of our ministry relies upon us. Right? We slowly but surely drift from reliance upon God's strength into reliance upon our cute or creative gimmicks or our cool edge. Do we see how this process, even just with methodology in youth ministry, fundamentally comes down to a matter of faith and unbelief? Faith and unbelief. It's not merely a matter of choosing different methods. It's a matter of faith and unbelief. We demanded that God prove his commitment to us by producing ministry success in the way that we wanted it. And when we see actually youth ministry is hard and sometimes we go years without producing a successful disciple, choices come our way. We are assailed by temptation. And we must believe in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ above all else. The devil's third temptation In verses 8 and 10, let's read that. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. In this third temptation, the devil again incites a visionary experience, most likely, where there's a vision of all the kingdoms of the world. And though it's a visionary experience, it's a real choice that he presents before Jesus. And you notice here, in the first two, he says, if you are the Son of God. He's evoking Jesus' status as Son of God and challenging the circumstances with that. Here, he doesn't use the language of Son of God because that would be pretty blatantly against his temptation. So the first two, he tries to challenge Jesus' filial affection and trust of the Father. In this last one, he challenges his allegiance to him as God. He challenges his kingship. And of course, Satan had no authority whatsoever to give Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. He's a liar. He's, that's sort of Irish. He's a liar. <laughs> Actually, my best friend is Northern Irish, so that comes with a lot of practice. But he's a liar. Had, he, had Jesus taken the devil at his word, he not only would have defied his father and compromised his messianic mission of redemption of us, but he would have forfeited the very thing the devil offered. Would have forfeited. The devil seeks to destroy. He offers us life and he leads us to death. Though at first sin seems to be the solution to our problem, Ultimately, sin devours and intensifies our predicament. A blogger on a major Christian website recently wrote these words. Listen to this. Sin makes so many promises. Sin promises joy, promises fulfillment. Sin promises to be your friend. When you first meet a new friend, you reveal only little bits of who you are, what you believe, what is important to you. But over time, if that friendship is to grow, you need to reveal more and more of yourself. You need to open yourself up. Friendship grows out of the vulnerability of allowing another person to see who you really are beneath the polite exterior. Sin asks you to give just a little bit more of, it to you, uh, more of yourself to it every time. Just a bit more. Just a bit more after that. But over time, sin comes to own you. 
It, com- it comes to know everything there is about you. And then it stabs you in the back and laughs with glee as you are left sputtering and humiliated and destroyed. It laughs as your marriage is destroyed, as your church is shamed, as your friends are betrayed. That's the kind of friend sin is. Satan desired to cut Jesus' feet from under him. He was offering him a shortcut to glory, a way to receive the kingdom without suffering. This is what Satan offers. Though ultimately Jesus would receive all the kingdoms of the world in their glory, he would do it by becoming the lamb who was slain, not by shortcutting. The prize was the kingdom and the glory of the Father. The means of achieving this prize was trusting his Father. How does this sort of end justifies the means tactic of the devil affect us? How does he try, uh, the way he tries to impose that upon Jesus, how does he impose that upon us? In other words, in what way does the devil use the tactic with us, hey, as long as you're getting the kingdom, it doesn't really matter how you go about it. In fact, my way is much easier. Right? The end justifies the means. We'll return to the same issue of methodology about which we both spoke, about which we just spoke, but we'll look at it from a different angle. Since our culture is obsessed with high achievement and performance, many of us feel intense pressure to produce high-performing and glitzy youth ministries. We feel that pressure to be successful in the world's view of it. I've lost my place. We feel intense pressure to produce successful youth ministry. We grow more enamored with the toys of our culture than the treasure of Christ. So how does this influence the way we view success in ministry? The end toward which we press. We may have started out in ministry with sincere efforts to build a deep, and rooted gospel community, but over time we've fallen into the habit of taking shortcuts with regard to discipleship. Maybe this was aggravated when we invested years of hard labor and time in a group of kids and they ultimately abandoned our youth group and left, or maybe they graduated, right? This is aggravated because now all of the fruit of our effort is out of sight. I know that that happens to us in youth ministry. But rather than bearing up under the cost of developing genuine disciples of Jesus Christ by his spirit, which involves endless hours of study and prayer and fellowship and developing volunteer leaders, endless effort to bear up under the cost of developing disciples. Rather than doing that, we've eased into the idea that as long as we have a certain number, we reach that benchmark number, as long as we have a certain number of kids attending our events or are keeping the adults on our youth committee happy, Right? As long as we reach those goals, we're okay. If we can create an engaging and glitzy atmosphere where the kids will be entertained and hear something gospel-ish, you know, gospel light, then we have built a successful youth ministry kingdom. The problem is that a youth ministry that only or even primarily entertains does not equip God's children in the wilderness. It does not build faith in the Father. In God's economy, both the end and the means are important. The end and the means are important. 
Ultimately, Jesus expressed his sonship by relying upon God's word and upon God's spirit and trusting his father's character in the midst of trial. I think a rather tender moment comes in chapter 4, verse 11. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. We see that God does provide for his children in the wilderness. He sustains us in our trials. Jesus knows the agony of temptation and offers present grace to us when we are tempted. God let Jesus hunger in the wilderness so that your Messiah would sympathize with you in your wilderness. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 2.18 writes this, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Likewise, in Hebrews 4.15, he continues, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been, as, who has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus endured the agony of temptation that he might equip us in the agony of our temptation. Lastly, we're moving beyond the scope of Matthew 4 and looking at Jesus' unique sonship and instead panning out in the entire gospel of Matthew. And we see this. Our sonship is the Father's means of reaching a lost world for his glory. Our sonship is the Father's means of reaching a lost world for his glory. Through Christ, God's unique Son, God reconciles us sinners to the Father. And through our sonship, we thereby are ambassadors to a lost world proclaiming to the world to be reconciled with our Father. So through Jesus' sonship, we are reconciled, and then our sonship reconciles. This is how God reaches a lost world. How was Jesus' unique sonship the Father's means to reach us? As God's faithful Son, His servant Son, Jesus endured the agony of temptation to secure the Father's pleasure in you. Jesus' resolve to trust the Father neither started nor stopped in the wilderness. He was resolved to trust the Father through it all. Though we see the devil actively waging war against the Son in Matthew 4, we know that throughout the Gospel account, the devil is using men and women as his pawns to wage war against the Messiah. Listen to this as I read from Matthew 27, 37 through 44, and see if you can discern Satan's influence. And over Jesus' head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and then we'll believe in him. 
He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Jesus, the unique son of God, on whom our sonship is founded, refused to come down from the cross for us. Jesus endured this intense anguish in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, the elder brother of many sons and daughters of the king, the very one about whom God declared, the Father declared, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. On the cross, experienced God's pronounced displeasure for us. The pleasure of the Father in Matthew 3 turns in Matthew 27 when Jesus takes on the agony of God's displeasure in order that he might secure the Father's pleasure for us. This is Jesus' sonship reaching to a lost world of which you and I are a part. The Father reaches out to us through his Son and he continues to reach out to the world through Christ, through us. Our sonship carries with it a missional dynamic. We express our sonship through Christ when we likewise deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow our elder brother. When we are faithful to our Father and trust his provision for us, especially in the wilderness, we bring him glory and we extend his kingdom in the lost world. When we submit ourselves to the will of the Father, he accomplishes his purposes in the world as we, his sons and daughters, bear up under our cross in love. Jesus equips us to trust our Father's grace by his Spirit. We've seen that our sonship is founded upon Christ's sonship. We've examined the ways that our sonship comes under constant and severe attack. We've seen that our sonship is expressed when we rely upon God's word out of love for our Father. And finally, we've spoken of the mission of our sonship, the effect of our sonship, that our sonship is the means of the Father reaching a lost world for his glory. In light of all of this, I'd like to leave us tonight with a very simple Pauline exhortation. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice for God. Brothers and sisters, as we persevere in the gospel by trusting the grace of our Father and as we press on in gospel ministry by laying down our lives for our teenagers. May we depend upon God's word and upon his spirit for the glory of our Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the sort of grace that you give us that withstands the storm of the wilderness. 
Father, I ask that in your covenant kindness you would convict us by your Spirit of any ways that we are indulging in temptation, any ways that we are choosing to independently provide out of self-gratification rather than trusting you in our weakness. Father, might you buttress our confidence in you, that we would live out our love for you, not in grandeur or in power, but in weakness, in trust. We believe in you and we believe in your Son. We thank you for the pleasure that he has secured for us. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, our elder brother, that we pray. Amen.